Well, we are in the final week of a series that we've titled Velcro, the idea of what will stick. The, the principle is simple. It's in this unique season that we've all had of so much stripping away, what might God be teaching us that we want to not only remember, but carry with us as life opens up again, as interactions open again, open again as opportunities do, what will we carry with us through the learning, through the experiences we've had? We've been in this series, we're in the final week, and the first week we looked at the role that rest plays, that God wants to reveal to us this rhythm of work and rest, that to discover how he loves us in the places of rest, not for what we do, but for who we are. And the second week we looked specifically at how we grow through struggle and trial, and that we need to embrace that and actually grow through it together. Then the third week, we really revisited our mission as a church to be radically loving and growing together in Christ and know that we're living in this culture that's only loving those that are like us and heard the call of God, the warming of our hearts, that we understand radical love is loving each other in our differences, not in our similarities. And then last week, we looked at how specifically we want to live in a posture of surrender for everything we do in our And this week on Father's Day, very fittingly, I believe there's something God wants to encourage us to bring together in it. And I want to simply to begin, have you consider images that remind you of your own dad. Maybe they're quirky thoughts about them. Maybe they're wonderful attributes. I know for me, one of the first things that comes to mind with my dad is was just this heart he had to be generous and give more than above and beyond what he could to each of us. So there was this deep way to say I love you by what he gave and what he did for. And that's a wonderful thing I remember about him. Now, in the same way, and you might even put some of these in the chat, dad's had quirks, and they all do. We all do. So this is the image of dads from the era I grew up in that I always have. That is dark socks and tennis shoes, in case you can't tell. I don't know what it was if they got home from work and thought, well, I put dark socks on, but I want to be casual, so I'll put some tennis shoes on with it. And I think I'll put shorts on to draw a lot of attention to my legs and the dark socks and white shoes. And it was just funny to watch, thinking, do you not know how you look right now? There were just those things where you went, okay, I guess he doesn't care. I guess he is that secure or that blind. I don't know. But it's my image of dads in that era. Another one that we know really from every era is dads' propensities to tell really bad dad jokes. I don't know what it was with my dad. He loved to tell them. I I wish I could remember the particular ones. Anytime I see or read a joke that's not funny, I picture him. I I mean, just think, if I stood up and said, hey, what kind of shoes does a lazy person wear? Loafers. You and I all understand that is not funny. But I can picture my dad smiling more with each horrible joke that's not funny. Each time, hey, do you know how you weigh a millennial? by Instagram. It's just not right, is it? It's not right. Maybe you can even write one of your dad's horrible dad jokes. Maybe you are a dad right now, proud, as I'm sharing that, though I tell you, you shouldn't be. Now, beyond dad jokes, though, we all have things that draw our attention to our fathers, things that connect us to them. For me, this is what connected me to my dad in a very unique way. It's a Nikon F-Series camera. These were really big in the late 70s and early 80s. Uh, My dad was really into photography. And I didn't find a lot of easy ways to connect in what we did, but I knew he loved this. And so I wanted to get into photography, not even because it was interesting to me, 
just because I wanted my dad's engagement in my life. Now, I'm not saying at all he didn't engage or didn't want to, but it was a point where I realized as a son what I wanted was his connection, his presence in my life. For all the things he gave and provided, what I really wanted was for him to be fully engaged in who I was. And I can tell you, actually, towards the end of his life were some of the best years. So for those of you who have grown children, please do not even think about this and go, it's later I wished I had and realized, man, those every year, every opportunity remains. Now, we didn't intend this for dads specifically, but I'm using this as a beginning point because I think it speaks to what I'm about to talk to you about, to what's been going on in this time or what could have been. Now, for me, I'm going to take you to a passage that as a father in particular, as one called to be present to relate to the people around me, that was a, a passage that jumped out at me, I would say somewhat prophetically. I'm not even sure it's all that's intended in the passage, but I know it's part of it. So I want to take you to Luke's account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. There are four accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is in Luke's. We're going to look at a very short excerpt from Luke chapter 1, where they're actually talking about John the Baptist, who's the cousin of Jesus, and he's the one that will be a forerunner. He will basically proclaim the coming of Jesus, and Luke's going to cite a prophecy from centuries before in Malachi. This is what Luke says in Luke chapter 1. He, meaning John, will bring back many people of Israel to the Lord their God. There's something that will happen that will already draw them. He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Now, I want to stop to make sure I explain this, not because it's central to where we're going, but it's still really helpful in this. In case you don't know, Elijah is one of the prophets of Israel, one of what we call the major prophets in what's called the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. Elijah was a significant person basically hearing from God and speaking to the people and interceding to God on their behalf, moving in both directions. He had a fantastic, powerful time of helping Israel be drawn to God. He's really considered kind of the major prophet. There's Moses, this major figure of redemption, and Elijah, this major prophet. And it was said in other prophecies later that when the one came who would basically point to Messiah, it would be someone in the spirit of Elijah. And so what Luke is saying is John is that guy. John is the one who helped people turn back to God that people had kind of wandered away and they were beginning to forge this pursuit of him again, this drawing back, that, that John is the one who goes before them, before the Lord. And what a great picture of every role of every Christ follower that we go before God on behalf of others. We don't simply go and say, help my life, but I'm gonna pursue you, Lord. And in the midst of that, I wanna be someone who helps others, to help others be drawn to you by that pursuit, to call out for that, to help in that, to walk in that, to cry out for that. It tells us he goes in the very Holy Spirit, in the power of the Spirit, and this is what grabbed me. Turn, turn the hearts of the parents to their children. Literally, this is the word fathers. What's happened now is because we understand that, not to be patriarchal, that it's all parents, but the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, in a, in a simple way, it's saying that it's taking these parents and pulling them back into loving relationship with kids, taking kids and pulling them back into loving relationships, rebuilding what is broken, and in the sense, as we rebuild that loving relationship, it prepares us to rebuild what God wants to do in a bigger way. 
Now, the reason I wanted to share this today and the reason I want us to walk into it in a much bigger way is because of this. I think in a time that our lives have been pulled away and everything else, we had an opportunity to be in our homes differently. Now, I'm not saying for every one of you it slowed down. I know for some it did, and it was unique. For others, you ran harder than you ever had. I know for me it was not the slowdown I thought, but it paralleled for me an experience I had some years ago in 1998 when I was literally fired from working at a church and ended up at home for some months with very little direction and incredible brokenness. And during that time, some of the people that I served with, a bunch of my teams got together and literally built an office for me in my basement. I would go there every morning and I would sit there for hours, sometimes just crying, sometimes listening to worship, sometimes praying, not even knowing what to do. Everything had been extracted. I'd lost my role as a pastor, my role as a leader. All these identity things I thought I anchored in were gone. But something unique happened and I began to hear above me the sound of my wife and children running around constantly. Sometimes it was great laughter and it would just make me smile. Sometimes it was screaming and crying and I would think, boy, I hope she handles that well. But what started to happen was this passage. In the midst of losing false identity, something shifted and my heart began to move in to want and move towards relationship with those closest around me. It's a crazy thing when you think about it. We all carry roles, lots of roles. I mean, your role might be as a boss or a manager or a worker. It might be as a teacher or an administrator or as a leader, as someone who carries out lots of things. It might be someone who walks alongside others as a mentor. It might be friend. But the roles that never change are roles of family, of being a husband, a wife, a father, a mother, a brother, a sister, a son, a grandfather, a grandson. No one else fills those roles. And I know for me in that season, what happened was this passage took on life. Now, I can't say it all got better then. I've struggled with all sorts of things, but I wondered, is there a parallel for us today? I wonder if there's an identity shift that God is wanting to make in this season where everything gets stripped away and we suddenly realize, man, there's more to my life than the roles I carry. And what began to change for me was a desire, I'm not saying I did it well, but a desire to be present in the lives of the people around me. I wonder how many of us struggle to be present in the world around us. You know, I, I've struggled with this in all sorts of ways at every level, just to be clear. I, I was thinking back of one of my most um, revealing moments. We were in a staff thing. It was some years ago. Uh, you know, we've had staff come and go over 20-some years of being here, and this one particular staff was saying goodbye. They were moving from a part-time to a full-time job somewhere else. We were celebrating them. They were sharing some things. They'd had an accident and some other physical issues, and I checked out. I wasn't present in the moment as they were talking. And I thought, oh, next I need to ask them what they're going to do. And so I asked it in front of everyone, and this person turned to me and said, well, as I just told everyone in the room, and I realized I'm not present in this moment. There's lots of moments I have not fully been present, that somewhere my heart is dissipated. Even in my own home and my family so lovingly, not even admonishing me, would just be aware I could tell people just wanted, I could sit at a table at dinner and not be there. 
Have you ever been in that place where you're present, but you're not actually present? Your heart, your mind, your thoughts, your emotions are somewhere else. And my family gathered a really loving way to just say, hey, where are you right now? (laughs) And my wife, even more lovingly, would say, hey, if you're needing time, if you need things to help you kind of be present, what's going on? How can I help with that? There was never an admonition. It was always an encouragement, like, we just want you here. And somehow this passage was one of those things that I've always stayed with and remembered that God wants my heart fully engaged in the moment I'm in. I don't know if you realize it, but that's the very missional way of Jesus. Let me take you to just Matthew's account of Jesus' life and hear how he's described from the prophecies. Speaking about Jesus coming, it says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. And it says these words, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now there's lots we could explore here, but I just want to ask this statement, God with us. Do you know how you can summarize God with us in one word? Present. It simply means Jesus came to be present. If you look at his very life, Jesus came in deep poverty. Jesus came in deep oppression. Jesus came into a life of unnoticed, unacknowledged, disinterested rejection. The prophet Isaiah describes it this way, that he was despised, that people looked at him as one who had nothing they had wanted to offer and says he is familiar, meaning he's experienced suffering. That Jesus' very life not only comes to forgive us, to die for us, but comes to be present with us. And in the same way invites us to be present with each other. My my longing is that as we finish this series, as we begin to open up life, we will not become so preoccupied that we lose or miss out to hear the very call of God saying, I want you to be present with those around you. In every moment, in every relationship, to be fully present so funny, whenever I think of presence, I'm reminded of the, the retelling of Mark Zuckerberg's story, The Social Network. There's a scene in there that I love where he's sitting in the midst of this lawsuit and he's being deposed, and the attorney for those that are suing him says, hey, do I have your full attention? Are you here in every way right now? And Mark stops and he goes, no. Most of where I am in my energy is back at Facebook. Most of where I am is coming up with new means and methods. Most of where I am is somewhere else. You have just enough to get whatever I have to do here. It's kind of a mic drop moment, like you don't deserve all of my presence. And as much as I wish that weren't true, I wonder how many of us live that way. Not able to be fully present, not to let our hearts turn back to those in front of us and be fully engaged with them. Not living the life Jesus had for us to be present. In fact, if I were to give us a simple thought about this, a simple way to maybe summarize it, it would be this. Preoccupation robs us from being present. When we're occupied with other thoughts, with other things going on, with other circumstances, it keeps us from being present in the very moment we're in. Now make no mistake, there are practical ideas after practical applications all throughout Scripture into what we can do to become present. Some really great ones. Here's just two simple ones I wanna show you, one from Jesus' account and one from who's considered one of the wisest people on the planet from all of history. 
This is what Jesus says, therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I wonder how many of us sit across the table, sit in a conversation, sit in a moment, and we're worrying about what's coming, and it's preoccupying us, it's robbing us from being present. There's a wonderful rabbinic midrash from Psalm 23 that speaks about this, about what worry actually is. Looking at Psalm 23, the rabbis would teach. It says, you make me lie down in green pastures, you put me beside still waters, you restore my soul. Now we think of green pastures as this wonderful lush area. In Israel, in the desert, green pastures were simply this. In the evening, it would cool off and the the waters would kind of rise up into the air. It would breathe over the desert. It would literally kind of, the winds would come over and they would land into these little clefts and rocks. And that water would be just enough to cause a green pasture, a tuft to grow up in one small area. And the shepherd would lead them to that area from that night to eat that day. The rabbi said it this way, that worry is looking for tomorrow's green pasture today. In a sense, it's not being present because of what's to come. And I don't know about you, but I've lived a lot of my life not able to be present because I'm worried about what's coming, not what is. That's a simple admonition, a simple encouragement. Live in the moment. Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't be preoccupied with what's coming. Let me take you to Solomon who adds to this in a different way. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and a chasing after the wind. I wonder how many of us are so busy trying to get to more, are never feeling like we're quite enough, that we're preoccupied with what is to come and how much more we have to do. How often I hear from someone and even say to myself, I'd like to be present, but I've got so much I need to prepare for, to plan for, and to do. So much going on. Now, if you don't think you worry this way, let me just add technology into it. Let me, just, let me just listen to a sound here, and I want you to think about what happens to you when you hear this sound. What do you want to do? Ready? Oops, I got to find it again. Hang on. Doesn't help when I'm the only one who hears it, does it? Here we go. What are you doing? Are you worrying that was your phone? Is there sweat pouring from your eyes right now and from your face? How about this? You're going to check even if it's not yours because it's bugging you. We have become Pavlov's dogs. Have you realized that? It is hard, isn't it, to not respond to our technology. And if you're sophisticated like me, you turn that off so no one else knows. But I have a watch that goes Which I realized first service when I did that, it did not sound like vibration. Every time I do it, it still sounds like what it did the first time. I seriously need help. I wanted to blame it in the first hour on being isolated too long, but I realized I would make that comment no matter when. Because I just, what does it make you want to think of? Oh, I'm much holier than that. I would never say that or comment about it. I don't even make that noise. You are lying. 
You know, it's a crazy thing to realize how preoccupied we are and even how the things around us draw us to that. And there are really practical ideas to help with that. It's a wonderful thing even to consider what might it be like for you to take something like your phone and put it away when you get home. What do you think that would do to your being present and discovering the world around you? What would it be like if you did? We, we had someone suggest this from a leadership uh, cohort recently. Just take 30 minutes and don't do anything. Learn what it is to be bored because boredom will lead you to being present. Practical things that I think could help any of us. That we are so preoccupied with worrying about what is coming and living on this treadmill that we will never get to a chasing after the wind. There are practical steps, but I want to take it deeper than that. Because what I've realized in my own life, and I don't think I'm alone, is that the drive for those things is from what I would call not quite feeling like I've done enough, or being loved for what I do and not who I am, or what we say in the church is an independent life. You see, what happens is we don't feel we're quite doing enough, and we become preoccupied because something's not settled with being loved for who we are but what we do. Even when you perform well and you suddenly feel better because you've moved this way, it's conditioned on what you do, and so your being present is conditioned on what they do, and we learn conditional presence. And when it doesn't go well, we can become preoccupied with trying to get back there. And even when it does, to get a little bit more, a chasing after the wind. You see, I can offer practical ideas, but what I want to encourage and offer is a new way of establishing identity. It was crazy. The best gift I had in those years when I got fired was it extracted from me this false identity. I'm living as a pastor, that's what gives identity. I'm living as a leader, that's what gives identity. I'm living as an influencer, that. They were all conditional things for what I did and not who I was. And God wanted to take me on a journey and continues to of being loved for who you are, not what you do. You know, the psalmist says it this way, that God's love is higher than the heavens higher than the heavens for those who fear him, and it reaches farther than east and west in his forgiveness. In other words, God's love is much bigger than you could know. And when we don't understand that we're loved for who we are, but think it's for what we do, we will never be able to be fully present because we're always trying to work a little harder and preoccupied with getting there. I love how John says this in his, one of his letters. He gives really clear statement to this. And he just says it this way about God's love. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. It sounds like a simple idea, but it just means this. If you don't fully get how you're loved for who you are, you cannot truly love people for who they are. I want you to consider it this way. And I want you to listen to kind of a restating of a passage that whether you've been in church or not, you may be familiar with. It's one that's read at weddings oftentimes. And I'm just going to change the word to God rather than love. And I want you to, if you have enough to close your eyes, just listen to it. And receive it as God's view of you. God is patient. God is kind. He does not envy. He does not boast. He is not proud. He does not dishonor others. He is not self-seeking. He is not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. 
He does not delight in evil, but rejoices with truth. He always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. It's interesting that it's Father's Day today. Because whether we see it or not, there's a gap maybe. The Father in heaven cherishes you for who you are and not what you do. And he's fully present in your life. In all the things that you are ashamed and want to hide, in the places you don't do it the way you wished you would, and the places you even do it in the way you hoped someone would be pleased, none of those change or impact his joy and cherishing of you. How can you and I be fully present when we're not fully loved? It's a bigger principle. It's not really something you can suddenly just buy, but here it is. Being loved for who and not what is the path to being present. I mean, it, it sounds simple, and it's incredibly freeing, but it's work to fully believe this. See, I'm convinced that worry and the way I move and the things I get preoccupied with and worrying about the next day and trying to achieve more, all base around believing that I'll be loved by what I do and not who I am. It's an independent way of living. And that to be fully present means to be fully loved. And to be fully loved means I look at the people around me and don't say I love you because of how you performed in this or what you did there and I withhold love because you didn't do this right and oh, I'm definitely upset because this reflects on me and I don't want it that way. No, no, no. It says, boy, I love you for who you are. I see who you are. I bless who you are. And I'm present with who you are and all of it. Fully engaged because God's fully engaged in my life. So I want to pray for us to experience that. I want to pray for us that we will begin to live differently in those practical ways. But that God might literally do what the prophet said would happen. Turn our hearts to our kids. Turn the kids back to the parents. We are in a time where there's such disagreement about so many things that if we start looking at each other loving for what we do and not who we are, we're sunk. But oh my goodness, if we can love each other for who we are and be loved for who we are, then we're prepared for the way of the Lord, as it says in the wonderful prophecy. I want to pray for us with this in mind, and I, as I prepare to pray, I want to tell you, if you're watching in any place today and you're saying, I want to follow Jesus, I want to be in relationship with him, I want to know this Father's love, it's very simple to say, Lord, I have sinned and I can't do enough, but out of love, you've done enough to show me who I am. Forgive me and reveal your love to me. And then we always pray, fill me with your spirit in this. That's all you have to do. And I want to invite you to pray that. And then for others of us here who say we follow Jesus, can you hear the call of God to be loved by him and in the same way be present with others and begin to let this other stuff fall, to not carry with you that out of the season, but to carry with you this unconditional, radical love the Father has for you, that you then walk in peace for what and who you are, not for what you've done. Let me pray for all of us. Lord, I ask in this time, God, that you'd move. For those places we even feel ache that we haven't been able to be present, that you would just comfort us. Show us how you love us in those misses. 
in the places we feel the gaps from others, that you would show your love to us, that you would pour out your fatherly love on us and your salvation on many who respond today. And Lord, help us to walk in a new way, fully present, turned hearts towards each other, prepared to be the very family of Christ that then walks in love towards others. Lord, we ask that you would encourage us, be present in our lives, and help us to be present in the lives of others. In your holy name, amen.